Welcome to the Relatively Damaged Podcast by Damaged Parents, where unidentified, confused, and alone people come to learn maybe, just maybe, we're all a little bit damaged. Someone once told me it's safe to assume 50% of the people I meet are struggling and feel wounded in some way. I would venture to say it's closer to 100%. Every one of us is either currently struggling or has struggled with something that made us feel less than. Like we aren't good enough. We aren't capable. We are relatively damaged. And that's what we're here to talk about. In my ongoing investigation of the damaged self, I want to better understand how others view their own challenges. Maybe it's not so much about the damage. Maybe it's about our perception and how we deal with it. There is a deep commitment to becoming who we are meant to be. How do you do that? How do you find balance after a damaging experience? My hero is the damaged person, the one who faces seemingly insurmountable odds to come out on the other side whole. Those who stare directly into the face of adversity with unyielding persistence to discover their purpose. These are the people who inspire me to be more fully me, not in spite of my trials, but because of them. Let's hear from another hero. Today's topic includes sensitive material which may not be appropriate for children. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as advice. The opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Today we're going to talk with Heather Jean. She has many roles in her life. Daughter, mother, grandmother, sister, leader, and more. We'll talk about how she struggled in her marriage with her husband who turned out to have early age Alzheimer's and when he passed away, how she found health and healing. Let's talk. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Welcome, Heather Jean, to Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. I'm so glad you're here today. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad I'm here today as well. I love the theme of this podcast. Thank you. We were just talking a bit about struggle and you had brought up judgment. Can you go a little bit into what your thoughts were on judgment for us? Yeah, I think I'm at a a stage in my life. And I don't mean because of age. I mean, because of what's happened in this last year, where a lot of us had to get quiet, we were isolated. I'm in the UK. So we've been isolated for over a year now. And that's purgatory for me being isolated, because I had to get quiet with things. But what it did make me aware of is how much I judge the feelings. Because I've spent most of my adult life avoiding the feelings, which is a red flag in itself. So I would just get busier whenever I had feelings, I'd I'd be even busier. So when I had to get quiet, I learned that I didn't accept feeling bad. So I felt like I always had to be happy or appear happy. And that I knew intellectually that wasn't true. But when you get right down to it, at least for me, I was judging that feeling bad is a bad thing. You know, feeling emotions, feeling the need to release, feeling the need to be angry or have space or judging our own feelings is one thing. And then the other thing that we tend to do is compare ourselves to other people. So, you know, I would always say, oh, it could always be worse. And then it's not really about comparing ourselves to other people's stories. So one of the things that I like the least is when people say I'm strong. And I'm sure we'll get into the story and and share that. But people will always say, oh, you're so strong. And I think, I don't like that because I don't know what that means. 
because you're hearing my story and then you're deciding, i.e. judging how difficult that would be for you without even having the experience. Right. And so I think sometimes when we compare ourselves and we we judge our own feelings and then we compare ourselves to others, then it takes us down kind of a red herring, takes us down the wrong road. So I've learned this last sort of year, probably two years now, that we just get to feel what we feel and experience what we experience and just enjoy the fact that we get to do that. Yeah. Without... And I wish we could be raised without saying, oh, this is a bad thing. You want to avoid that. Like, don't do that. This is going to feel bad. You don't want to feel bad. You know, that's crazy. It makes no sense to me. Yeah. Or like when people try to save someone from their own choices because they think they know the answer for that person, that that would be a judgment too, right? Because that answer is not right. Right. For... And or the perception of it isn't right. And then you're sort of saying, okay, well, so this is how I want to live my life. So let me project that onto you and suggest you live that way, which is bad enough in itself. But then on top of it, uh, like I have self-limiting beliefs of what I think I can and can't do, which limit me because I believe them. And you have self-limiting beliefs for you. So if I take your advice, I'm taking on your self-limiting beliefs as my own. Ooh, that's right? very interesting. Yeah. Right? Because if you say, oh, you, could, you couldn't possibly start a business because that's your limiting belief. And then if you impose that and I accept it, now I'm limited by that too. Now you layer on all yeah. that stuff from all the people that you accept advice for. You just so easily give away power then. Yeah. Oh, you look really shocked that I said that. <laughs> no, I... Using the word power, I thought last night someone said to me, grace is power. And it immediately took me to the thought of giving other people grace to be who they are. And I thought how that gives them power. So that's the connection that happened in my brain. And I thought, okay, when she says power, what I think she's saying is the same thing that my other friend meant by grace is to allow that person to be who they are in that moment and meet them right where they're at and give them the power. Don't take it away. And there is power in difficulties and struggles and feeling bad. And, you know, I didn't cry for almost my entire adult life. I, it's not because I didn't let myself, I couldn't, I just, I mean, at some level I wasn't letting myself, but I, I just couldn't, it didn't want to come out. And that's because I had a very deep well and I was just shoving it all down. And then, you know, my husband passed away two years ago and everything came up. And now I can't stop crying. I cry all the time. But it's interesting how we can kind of use ourselves as a container and avoid things that we don't want to feel or we don't want to experience or we don't want to see or we don't want to try or whatever it is. Yeah, I I agree 100% with that thought and and then how you were talking about putting that on other people without realizing it just because I have that realization I think oh they've never had that realization and I need to share that realization and the fact of the matter is that may not be true either (laughs) yeah yeah I mean families are really good at that right like you know our parents tell us what we should and shouldn't do which is great when we're younger because we need some guidance we give them a lot of power that they're so my mother always used to say I'm really impatient and she would say it with a real tone of voice of like don't be so impatient and she didn't mean it it was a judgment no 
question, but she wanted me to improve it or change it. But what it ended up doing was becoming a, one of my characteristics or my identity, one of the things that informs who I am. And it's only recently that I've gone, hang on a minute. <laughs> First of all, you're not giving me any credit for growth and change throughout my life and my journey. And actually, you don't get to decide that that's who I am just because I was impatient when I was 10 and I did a thing. Yeah. And it was one moment. And I was just thinking about that this morning, the memories we choose to hang on to versus mm -hmm. not. And I'm, I still don't totally understand. I'm not certain that we will ever totally understand what makes us choose one negative event over another negative event over a positive event or another positive event or what it is in those moments. And I think that just goes into how human we all are. I don't know. It's just really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, first so, of all, we, we have a negativity bias anyway, that's just kind of built into us. So that negativity bias would highlight those points, right? That would kind of cause us to see, you know, and then you add language patterns within your family or from when you're younger or whatever. So my mom would say, oh, you spoiled the day. It's like, well, this one bad thing didn't make the rest of the day not happen. That right. makes no sense. And I used that pattern for quite a while when my children were young. And I thought, no, that's not true. It didn't ruin the whole day. But we tend to focus on those negativity things. And then what we do is we make associations between those and go, oh, that was like the last time. Every time we have a day out, you know, you ruin it or whatever the thing is. And then we make all these associations. We get into this big loop. So that small thing that happened where I dropped my ice cream or whatever, then becomes this really big colossal thing. And then you vividly remember that day you dropped your ice cream because we're looping onto it, all kinds of other negative associations. And then it, it gets stronger and stronger. And if I had my time again, with my children are grown up now, my youngest is 20. So if I had my time again, I would it reinforce the positive. I did do that, but I don't think I did it enough to reinforce the positive moments and sort of say, so what was good about it? What did you enjoy about it? And I did do that practice and I did go back through, you know, what happened today? All the things, no judgment, just the, all the things that happened. And then I failed a math test and then I had a nice dinner and then I visited a friend and, the, and then I got in trouble because I was late and then I did this and this and this without judgment. And so that's helped a little bit uh, about them sort of internalizing the negative, and, you know, so far. <laughs> It's early days. But so far, the, a lot more of their memories seem to be positive. Whereas I think the language patterns that my parents used were much, or certainly my mother used, were much more about focusing on the negative and how she felt about that when I did the thing. And so I think you where, where you choose to focus is where that energy will go and, and you'll store that. Right, right. So I'm thinking maybe you could take us through your journey of your mm -hmm. struggle and, mm -hmm. and give us I usually ask for tips and tools at the very end, and maybe we could just go over what those are at the end. But I would really like to hear the struggle and then how you worked into that positive, not positive, but maybe a more neutral mindset versus like the positive, because I'm thinking what I'm getting from you is that it's not necessarily positive. It's not necessarily negative. It is. And how do you get there with so many challenges? Yeah. So I didn't have a, like a difficult childhood at all. I think I was a difficult child. I was certainly programmed to believe I was a difficult child because I was very free and I, I, I didn't have a lot of filters and my mother didn't appreciate that. And so she was raised by English parents, right? So, and I now live in England, ironically. So I, I kind of understand that culture more about let's like, don't make a fuss. 
stiff upper lip. All that stuff is real. Like it, and it's true today as well. I'm looking outside my window. So there was a lot of, you know, you're not supposed to make a lot of fuss and don't embarrass me and all those kind of things. So then when I grew up and, and got married, I was in an abusive marriage. I don't know if I told you that before, but I was in an abuse. Yeah, no surprise. Yeah. So I was, in a, I was in an abusive marriage, mostly mentally and, and emotionally is what has stayed with me and what I continue to process. And I was in the Middle East as an expat and it was, I was the expat. And so I was fortunate because I had company housing and there were a lot of of things in place that made it easier for me to be a a single parent. After my husband eventually left and I managed to to get him to leave the, the Middle East, then I found out I was pregnant, had my first child on my own. And of course, when you're an expat, you're, you're with people that you're really close to, but you wouldn't have chosen in the outside world. Your kind of selection pool is fairly small. So you just you just form a community. And I had no family there. So then I met what became my second husband, also in the Middle East later. And I don't think that I was aware that I had a lot of trust issues. I don't think that I was aware that I had internalized a lot of the the abuse that I had uh, gone through. I knew like intellectually, I would say, oh yes, of course, of course these things have to affect you. But I don't think I really believed that it did affect me in a deeper level. I don't think I really made that think me think that, oh, I don't need to address these things and work through them. Right. And at that time that with, with the abusive husband, were you aware you had been in an abusive relationship? Oh yeah. I mean, okay. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No question. Yeah. No okay. question. Well, I wasn't until I was married. That started right after the honeymoon. Okay. It was like, wow. but like a whole different person. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. And then, so there was. Yeah. He was a totally different person before we got married. Okay. Fully. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was almost like, okay, well you're mine now. Ah, Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. So my ex-mother-in-law said the same thing happened to her when she got married, but I didn't know that. Nobody talks about that stuff. It's like, thanks. You could have let me know that, you know? Yeah. She later disclosed to me that that same thing had happened to her with her husband. So that, you know, my ex-husband's father. Yeah. So, so you have these behaviors that you kind of picked up to protect yourself, if you will, and took them to the new relationship. And yeah, what happened there? Well, that didn't go so well. He also had trust issues, my second husband, because he had been married before and his wife had left him when he was, when he had two very young children, like 18 months and about just over three. So he also had trust issues because she just kind of left him with the children. So, so the two of us get together and it, it just felt like healing to have this connection. And so you, you can imagine two damaged pieces come together. They don't make one whole healthy piece. And you can't heal each other. I mean, that's a myth anyway. You can't heal each other. You know, you can support one another through healing, but if you're incomplete yourself, it's the self-limiting beliefs thing, right? So we're imposing each of our limiting beliefs and experiences onto each other and then almost kind of accusing each other of things that actually had happened in our past. Okay, so you're upset so something happens in the relationship and there's there an argument ensues, if you will, and the the blame is you, you, you didn't do this. Yeah. Or you meant this, you did this, but you meant that those kind of, there would be like in projections of, oh, I know that's what you really meant. Okay. So there, there is a difference in a relationship between needing somebody because you want them and wanting somebody because you need them. Okay. And Explain. because 
his wife had left and taken off and left him with the children, he wanted our relationship, his and my relationship, to be that I wanted him because I need him. So, i.e., I can't leave. So rather than saying, well, I need you because I want to be with you. I want to be here. That's what makes me need you. I want to, you know, support one another and so on. It was more, I need that from you. That's what I want because I need it. I can't leave. That's ultimately what he wanted. This is my second husband now. So we had a a child together. He had his two children that were, had been very young. I had my child. So we raised four children together. He was an excellent father, but a terrible partner because he needed that control and he needed to know that I couldn't leave. So there was a lot of what I now see as very low-key abuse with invalidating my emotions and sort of saying, no, that's not true. And, you know, I'd say, I feel this way. And he'd say, no, you don't. And he said, everybody knows that's not true. So then I would start looking around like, oh, wow. Like, okay. Uh, Obviously, the whole world thinks I'm a fraud. There was a lot of that kind of game playing, which was deliberately intended. Well, not deliberate. That's not fair because he can't speak to that, but seemed deliberately intended to control me to feel like I needed to stay here because I have no other option. I don't think he realized that's what he was doing. There's a huge amount of gaslighting. So what happened was we had met in the Middle East and then we we all moved back to the UK. And so he had his two parents. He was an only child. He had no other family, just his two parents. And I didn't have any family in the UK at all. We were very much each other's support. And I started my business. I was very busy. My business took off. It was hugely successful. I was traveling all over the place. I kind of, in a way, didn't notice. And I know that sounds really stupid, but I was busy because I was a very involved parent. I had my business. I was very social. My kids joined rugby on a weekend. I would be there. I'm in the club. I know every, you know. So I just went to my personality default of let's get really, really busy. And then I don't have to notice these things. So it was at some level quite deliberate to ignore those things. And then, and I don't know where this started, but in his 40s, He got Alzheimer's. He had early onset and we just couldn't get it diagnosed. In fact, it's very difficult in the UK to get it diagnosed for someone under 65 because it's not supposed to happen. So there was a lot of gaslighting that went on. There was a lot of that. He asked me to do something or tell me he was doing something. And then later on, I'd say what happened. And he'd say, I didn't say that. So I'll never really know how much of that was him playing games and how much of that was his dementia. It's impossible to separate the two because we didn't know he had dementia at the time. And I think the reality is that he had more dementia than he realized, a lot younger than he realized. And we just couldn't get it diagnosed. And in the end, he got to his, I guess he was in his 50s before we had it diagnosed. And I went to a private drugs company to a private trial because the the national health system in the UK wouldn't diagnose it. And I got it diagnosed that way. And he was on a drugs trial and we were able to, to do things to improve the quality of life. But I became a carer then. And for a long time, we hadn't had a, a relationship. We had a partnership in terms of raising our children, but we hadn't had a partnership in terms of he and I being having a relationship together. Um, What was that like caring for someone who you thought had gaslighted you and then come to find out there's Alzheimer's and then you're the primary giver? How did that feel? Like that sounds extremely difficult to me. 
the main reason we didn't have a relationship because I was angry. I felt like, you know, and bear in mind, I've been through my first marriage. I have a pretty good idea of what gaslighting feels like. So I'm now accusing him of that, you know, because we keep projecting all these things. And it, it just made us very, very distant. And it's so difficult. And I know, I know a lot of people who live like this, but for me, it was so difficult to live in a relationship where there isn't really a relationship in existence. You're just physically sharing the same space. And in our case, we were sharing the raising of our children, which he was exceptional at as well. So my children in a way benefited. The only problem is they didn't get to see the role model of how a healthy relationship should work. But the resentment going on of believing that he's gaslighting me, believing that, you know, he's lying to me, believing all of these things and feeling deeply lonely while I'm not alone. And everybody in the outside world thinks that everything appears normal. Because that's how you grew up, right? That's how you grow up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And my parents are from the generation you stay together for the kids. And although a lot of their friends were divorced, you know, they were kind of the first generation of divorced parents and that we'd seen in a, in a relatively normative way, you know, you said they went down the road of, you know, you stay together for the kids. And, you know, and there were lots of research that supported that. And of course, now we have a lot of research to the opposite. I, I have since found out that a lot of people were, have been and are in relationships where they're together, they're, they're, they have children, the children kind of become their whole focal point, and they fail to have a relationship, because they work on their relationship. And then the children grow up and they're kind of, they're not stuck together, but the perception is that they're stuck together. You know, and I keep saying, look, either open your marriage or get a divorce because you guys are both miserable and this is not, this seems like a difficult way. I don't say it quite that way because that's judgmental, (laughs) but that's what's going on in my mind of why are you living like this? Because they'll say, I don't want to live like this. And I think, okay, so what do you need to do? So I'm much more softly about that. But that's, I mean, just because we're talking about this in terms of time, that's kind of what it's going through my mind of what are you doing? Yeah. But it is, but to answer your question directly, it is deeply lonely to be, and I'm alone now, right? So it is deeply lonely to be with somebody and be alone. And I much prefer being alone, like literally alone. Because then I choose when I'm alone, when I'm not. But that pain of just kind of like wanting to have a relationship and being, I'm going to say, stuck with somebody, particularly when he got sick. So when he got sick, I chose to stay. I could have left before he got properly sick. When we got a diagnosis, I could have left. The reality is if I chose that, my children would have been responsible for looking after him. Three of them were in university at the time. One of them was still in school, like in in, in high school at the time. It, it would have meant that my second oldest son would have had to drop out of university just the way it worked. And he would have had to care for him until one of the others could come along and take over. And I thought, why would I impose that on my children when I'm actually capable of doing this? So I made that choice. And just coming back to the whole not judging the feelings thing, I had to remind myself every day that this is happening. This is a choice that I have. I don't like any of the choices, but I am choosing to stay. I'm choosing to be here. And that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a thing. It's what I've chosen. And once you acknowledge that to yourself, how did that impact your feelings throughout those days and weeks and months? Yeah, I mean, there are some days when I used to sit in the driveway and go, particularly when he was getting sicker and he became incontinent, and I'd, I'd sit in the driveway and think, oh, I don't want to go in the house. Not because I didn't want 
to face those things, it was more of a, what am I going to face? Like this, you know, the not knowing was brutal. And some days there would be nothing. And some days it would be a disaster. And so, but I, I, I think for me, it was just the whole kind of ups and downs of it all and, and dealing with that, like not knowing and, you know, not having other family around that could, you could sort of say, can I go away for the weekend? So, you know, to, you take a turn or because my children were all off in university at this point and, or heading off to university. So they were all in North America. They were a long way. So there was no respite, I guess, is the thing. But as long as you can kind of position it, feeling like this isn't being, because it's really easy to go into victim now, right? At that point, right? Mm -hmm. right? Poor me, I have no family. Poor me, I have this thing. Poor me, I, you know, that doesn't get you anywhere. That's when people say, oh, you're so strong, which really annoys me. But it's kind of like, why would I put myself into that place of a victim when that can't possibly help so you knew you chose it and and even though you chose it it would be really easy to go to victim and now you're saying going to victim wouldn't help can you explain that so that i have a better understanding of what you mean by going to victim doesn't help yeah because so at this point I've made my choice that's already happened and I can choose, I can change my mind any day, but the other choices are, are not acceptable to me. So I could process it with, this is really bad. This is really hard. This is, I don't have a choice. I don't like what's happening to me. You know, I can't go out with my friends. I can't do all these things. I, I could talk to myself like that. Like I can't, I can't, I can't. Right. And right. it means that the whole world is kind of, that I have no control, right? The whole world is coming in and I'm becoming smaller and smaller. And that's really different to sort of saying, okay, but I'm choosing this and I'm doing this and here's what I can do. And I, I, I can go uh, with my friends as long as I don't go out for too long. And I, I actually took up cabaret during that as well, which was respite going in and doing classes and finding a new community where I felt empowered and and so what I can do is look for ways where I can feel empowered and what I can do is find communities where I can either have a break where I don't I didn't find it helpful to join the carers kind of groups I know that it gives a lot of comfort for a lot of people so what I can do is look into that what I can do is look into communities where I get to be anonymous and I don't have to be a, a carer I can just be me and so when you start saying what I can do and what my choices are then you know that you have some power or control and that's when you can be more proactive and there are things I can't do I can't change the prognosis of the dementia I can't change the situation that I'm in with my family you know I I can't well no, no I I wasn't willing to I can't change where I'm living I can't change the past I can't change so let them go right so I live by control the controllables so control what you could impact and not what you couldn't impact or what you weren't willing to impact, right? Because I heard yeah. you say, I can't leave the relationship. And then you re you restated and said, yeah. well, no, that's not true. I if you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. So control what you could impact and not what you couldn't impact or what you weren't willing to impact right because i heard yeah. you say i can't leave the relationship and then you re you restated and said yeah. well no that's not true i wasn't well, I willing could. to yeah i can choose to leave the relationship right i can choose to let my children look after their father but i chose not to so that's a can right 
I don't yeah. like that choice. I don't like either one of those choices, but I can make that choice. And then what those choices are that have been presented to me, they're not within my control. So I need to let them go. Right. Instead of hanging on desperately to, but I really wanted to do this. So how did you do that? How did you let it go? Because it sounds like it was more than one time of having to let it go. It was a daily practice. It's been a daily practice for a long time. It was a daily practice in my first marriage. It was a daily practice with raising a family. When I was pregnant with my youngest son, who's now 20, my second husband, we were visiting Canada and we were transiting through Seattle and he got pancreatitis and it was something, uh, I don't know, something genital, uh, not genital. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, genetic. genetic. Thank you. I couldn't, I knew it was a G word. So there's something <laughs> genetic and he, and so he had pancreatitis and he was stuck in the States for three months and I was pregnant. So he came home about four weeks before I gave birth and he was in a very bad state. He'd been in the hospital for months and he, he was very, very weak and close to dying. And we had just moved house and I had been away working. So I didn't see the house other than pictures. So I didn't really know where, the, I'd never been to it. I didn't, I knew roughly where it was, but I didn't know how to get there. I didn't know the address. I didn't have keys. I didn't, We and they, the movers put our stuff into the new house. And then my husband met me at the airport and we flew off to Canada. And then on the way home, he took sick and he couldn't return with us. And I had to return because I was in the States. My medical insurance wouldn't cover me having my baby in the States. So, and I couldn't go back to Canada because Canadian healthcare works quite different as well. I wasn't living there. I wasn't paying into that system. So that didn't cover me either. So I had to come back to the UK, but I didn't know where I lived. Oh dear. Yeah. So my husband's uh, on morphine and he's trying to give me information about the house. And I brought the children and we found the house and got into the house, but I couldn't assemble the furniture or anything. And all the movers, they'd gotten in late, so they didn't build the beds or anything. And so we just slept on the floor because I couldn't build them because I was heavily pregnant and I was still working very long hours. So, and I didn't know where their new school was. I had to find that and all these things. And I, I had to set all that up on my own in very bizarre circumstances. And I can remember that control the controllables happening for me then because my clients were going, I don't know how you're doing this. Like, what is going on? How are you still at work? And and I, I was self-employed, right? So I had to show up for work or not get paid. It's just, and actually lose clients because you don't just not show up. So I can remember that control the controllables all that time. And I was staying up late because Seattle's eight hours behind the UK. So I was trying to speak to specialists and surgeons and things and, you know, sort out insurance. The insurance company wanted to bring him back because it was too expensive to keep him there. And there was a big fight about whether he would die en route and all this. So this is all going on. And I'm thinking, okay. So I can't do anything about that. I can talk to the doctors. I can talk to the insurance company. I can, you know, make it as comfortable as possible. I can find a new midwife and where my doctor is. And all. I can't, I can, I can, I can. That's all I could do because there were so many things out of my control. And I think that's when I really learned that piece because I couldn't shut down because I'm pregnant and I couldn't shut down because I have young children. Well, I mean, you could have. Well, and then what? But I, see, you said yeah. you could have. What would have happened? Right. I don't know. I can't understand. And I wouldn't ever judge somebody else for shutting down. I just don't understand what that means. Right. Which we were kind of talking about that earlier a little bit before yeah. we started the podcast about yeah. the judgment and 
stating whether or not what I think you should do is what's right for you and vice versa. I mean, yeah. And in a weird way, I quite enjoyed having no, I had no family. So I quite enjoyed having no advice. (laughs) Nobody was kind of going, no, because it's really strange. And it happens in lots of different things. I I had breast cancer. Everybody kept saying, well, when I had breast cancer, here's what I did. Here's what my mother did. Actually, I quite enjoyed not having any advice about being pregnant or settling in because nobody knew me. I was completely anonymous. It was kind of nice to not have everybody else's stories and advice and imposed, you know. Yeah, we don't so, really think about, at least I I think being aware that we're putting advice on other people is not something yeah. we just think we're being helpful and it yeah. may actually create more stress. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's the control and controllables that I live by and there's the, if it's right for you, then it's right. That's it. I bet that gave so much freedom to the people around you too. Well, I mean, when I was pregnant and, and all that scene happened, it was, I didn't know anybody. Like I literally, we'd moved to a new city hours away from where we lived before. I didn't know anybody at all. So it wasn't even freedom for people around me because they, I, except for the midwives, I, I didn't, I mean, I, I certainly wasn't going to go to work and talk to my clients. I was charging them. That wasn't a thing. So there was no circumstances where, where anybody would have given me advice, even if I wanted it. But actually it was quite nice because later when my husband was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, I found out I had breast cancer. I had all the advice and the intentions were good and they were kind but it did not help it was like really i i didn't ask you for this advice or your horror stories oh wow so you were not just getting advice you were also getting horror stories oh absolutely absolutely so you know that so so i'm very cautious about inserting myself into other people's lives and then giving them advice because it, look if they want my advice they'll ask for it you yeah. know in my work i'm a training consultant so people ask me for my advice and they pay me for it and that's great that's fine but, you know i'm not saying i have to get paid for advice but what i'm saying is i know when my advice is welcome but i also know when it's unwelcome and we all know when it's not welcome or certainly we know when it hasn't been asked for but we ignore that and we still want to tell our story or impose that yeah it's an interesting thought that i'm having about what how you said we all know when it's not welcome and mm. I really work hard and I know I'm not 100% at it asking if they want what they need from yeah. me yeah. because I really don't know what they need from me. No. Even when I think I know if I haven't checked in with them, I don't know. No. And you're hallucinating if you think you do. Or I'm just guessing based off of what's <laughs> happening inside of yeah. me, right? And yeah. what I think I might want. And what I think I would want if I was in your position. Well, first of all, you're not me. And second of all, you're not in my position. And you know what I mean? And how many times have you been in a situation where you think, oh, I've judged others for being in this situation and now I'm in it and it's not what I thought or it's different because it's this or the judgment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think we all do it. I don't think I'm alone in doing that. You know, no, you're not. You're alone. Let us I know mean, in the comments if you think we're alone. No, don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> like... Oh, you know, and I think that's where we're learning that empathy and learning to let people be meeting them where they're at and letting yeah. them be who they are. Yeah. And for me as a parent, that is the harder way to parent, I think, because yeah. it would be a lot easier to tell my children exactly what I think I want them to do or need them to do so that they can have a successful life. And in reality, I don't know. No, 
No, absolutely. And actually, you're learning more from them than they're learning from you anyway. Sure seems like it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, especially I mean, the ones you don't get. You're like, oh, you have things, you process things different to me. That's a cool thing for me to learn about. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so easy, though, as a parent, I don't know if this happened to you, but as a parent to think, and I know I haven't spent 100% of the time nor with them all day, every day, right? Even during COVID, they're off doing different things than me. And who am I to think that they would even think the same way I'm thinking? Yeah, you can. For you, how do you remind yourself of that? So I have my oldest and my youngest are, they think quite similar to one another and they seem to, they seem to understand one another, even though they're 15 years apart, they, they just have a, a similar kind of nature and way of processing things. My second youngest one is very much like me. He always says we're basically the same person. And I can say to him, I know what you're thinking. I know why you're thinking it. And later on, you're going to see why that might not be your only choice. I can kind of preempt some of his thinking. And actually, I, I was, I've been doing this course and I was doing some homework on Monday night. And I said, oh, I've got to finish my homework on Monday night. It's due tomorrow. And he went, of course it is. It's like he just gets it because that's how he processes. <laughs> and my second oldest process is entirely different. He would have everything done and ready way in advance, right after it was assigned. So I'm kind of, oh, that's a really cool thing to learn, you know. And that if you can really kind of see where people are, you don't have to be the expert. You know, you just get to kind of go, what's your thinking there? Okay, what makes you say that? Okay, so how did you read, you know, and you, if you can kind of unpick it, you can help them see it. It's, it's kind of like coaching, but it, it's the coaching techniques, right, of asking questions and helping them see rather than you always having to be the authority or the, the person who knows better. You are the person who gets to make the decision when they're minors, right? You are ultimately the person. And I, I never made my children make tough decisions, you know, about what school they'd go to or, you know, those kind of things. I, I, I let them decide a little bit as in, you know, give me what they wanted. And I did lay a lot of values-based things. For example, if they joined a team, they saw that team out till the end of the season, even if they changed their mind after a month, because they joined a team and that's a commitment that they made to others. And, you know, those kind of principles, I think, will be valid. But I also, what I didn't realize with my children is how much they take on what you do or don't do. Like if you're not modeling the way, you can say what you like. They won't take that lesson. So I I didn't make time for self-care, for example, ever. Mostly because I didn't want to feel the feelings, right? So if I paused and sat in a hot bath or if I paused and, and, and took some downtime for journaling or something, I don't know what would have happened, but I didn't want to feel that way. So I just kept really, really busy. And, and now, no surprise, they don't love self-care, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah, because I never did it. I never showed you what that meant or how to do it. Which would be really hard. So they're going to have that struggle to figure yeah. out. Yeah, now um, they get to figure it out. Not. And they're watching me go through it now. They're watching me go through this whole thing. Like asking for help, that's a big deal. I don't like to ask for help. I'm getting so much better at it since I've had this downtime of 2020. But I didn't like to ask for help. And I never liked to accept help, even if it was offered. So I could be struggling. I could be like carrying really heavy bags and somebody who said, do you want some help with that? And I go, no, no, that's fine. Even though I would love some help with it, I would still struggle. It's where it's a part of it, how imposter syndrome shows up for me. But so I am getting a lot better at that. But we talk openly. And my father didn't ever accept help and still won't. You know, we always talk, oh, he was a proud man, that kind of thing. You know, it's like, actually, that doesn't really explain it. And especially here in the UK, because we're all supposed to be fine. That's just 
kind of how how the culture works hugely generalizing here but that is the and I and I I have more of a Canadian philosophy on these things in that way but I've been in the UK a long time now and it still does inform that whole kind of I'm supposed to be okay and so not asking for help is a big deal and we talk really openly about that about how I didn't parent you to do that I wasn't parented to do that I didn't understand it I get it now I made a major mistake and the sooner you guys learn this and get over that the better off you'll be. You have to let people in. You have to let people help you. You have to be able to say when you're struggling, you know, and my, my youngest has had, had a lot of anxiety and depression during COVID. And he's in, he was in Canada. He was in, in a part of Canada where I, we don't have any family and we're from the West Coast. He was entirely on the East Coast, you know, in the Atlantic provinces. So he was very isolated. And, you know, we talk openly about you have to let people help you. You have to say, I'm not okay. I'm struggling. You have to look for resources. You know, this is a back to the can do thing. What can you do? There's counselors on campus and there's these things. Talk to your friends and share these things and, you know, stop feeling like you have to hold them in and be just yourself. Yeah. It's not all on you. Yeah. And it sounds like he was able to do that during that time. And yeah, he, well, he wasn't for most of 2020. He hid and he just sort of lived in like denial and just kind of, oh, I'll, I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do that tomorrow. And this huge procrastination. And then, of course, the anxiety, especially if you're already prone to it, for any of us, the anxiety builds up. But if you're already prone to anxiety and then you've gone into a depression, you really just can't get out of bed in the morning. Then, you know, I'll try tomorrow and tomorrow's. And then the longer it goes on, the more failure you feel and that feeds it. So he, he, came back at Christmas, the very last minute, like, you know, he traveled on Christmas Eve because he wasn't planning on coming. And he was uncomfortably thin, where he just hadn't been eating. So he's not through it, but he's working on it, you know, and that it's part of his journey. And this is the thing is you asked me earlier about that, you know, kind of not judging. I am good with boundaries. I am very good with boundaries. I can help you, but it's your journey. I wasn't the one who had Alzheimer's. I didn't experience that. I experienced my own journey in relation to that. But I, I didn't need to, you know, and that that's the thing, the difference between empathy and sympathy, isn't it? It's just that you don't need to go there. You just need to allow others to express so that you can understand and you can do what you can do. Right. So it's not anxiety and depression. I'm a mother. I want to fix it for him. Of course I do. But the reality is I can't. I mean, I could keep him home and I could make him go to therapy, but that doesn't make you absorb it or do the work. No. Yeah, so, it just doesn't <laughs> for anyone, no. you know. Well, I can it should make your children do their homework, right? It doesn't mean they're going to learn it. Right. If they switched off mentally and they're going through the motions and you're sitting there at the table with them making them do it, that doesn't mean they're going to learn it. That's their journey. It is. Okay, so three tips or tools so that people support or otherwise can learn to do what you've done. And yeah, I, I think it's really interesting what you've done. I love the I can versus the I can't. So yeah, three tips or tools on how to keep to, to redirect back to that way of thinking maybe. Yeah. So, you know, when you get into that, I can't, and I have to, when you start hearing yourself use that kind of language, whether that's in your head or actually out loud, then then stop and say okay so what i know you can't but if you could what would you do what can you do what is possible what you know and just just kind of interrupt some of those i can't i have to whatever your rules are and, and change those change that language pattern too so what can you do 
to what is possible. I can't, I'm still in this huge mess from when my husband passed away. And that's two years ago, just over two years ago now. I still haven't figured out all of his passwords. I still haven't found all of the financial disaster that he left me in, which was well over 150,000 pounds. So that's significant in US dollars. I'm still working through that. I can't do it all in two years. It's quite ridiculous if I judge it. But I, what I can do is a little bit each day. What I can do is not judge myself. I can choose not to judge myself on it. What I can do is look after myself and be kind to myself. You know, so it's that sort of switching that back and not judging yourself for the things you can't do. Let them go. That's awesome. Just like you would judge others. Yeah. Yeah. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Oh, me it's too. just been so much fun. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing. You can have a good time or you can do hard time. So if you're doing hard time, then you need to interrupt it and, and control the controllables. Stop judging. Stop trying to control everything. I mean, that would, okay, that's my third thing. Okay. Stop trying to control everything. I controlled everything and I had all these really tight little, I was, you know, the perfect wife and the perfect mother and the perfect businesswoman and the perfect, all these things. And then when it ended and your labels will end, they will. It's just, just how life works. All the things you think you are, if you're defining yourself by your labels, they're going to end. They're going to change. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. You're yeah. not going to be a full-time mother forever. You, hopefully. I mean, right. that's best case scenario, right? Is that you, your full-time motherhood ends. That's best case, right? Because this is what you want. It just, it will end. I, you know, my mother died in January this year and now we're in March or so just the 31st of March. So I'm just over two months and I, it really took me a while to kind of go, I'm not a, I'm not her daughter anymore. Like I had my birthday since then. We had Mother's Day because we had Mother's Day in March. So I had a Mother's Day and I was like, oh, wow. And I had to say to myself, okay, well, so, but I'm still a mother. I still get to celebrate Mother's Day, yeah. even though it's not the same, yeah. you know, but that ends. It's, that's the right order of things, right? Yeah. Right. And I think I hear you saying that losing mom doesn't take away from the fact that you still get to celebrate over here. Mm -hmm. And that, that also doesn't take away the pain of the loss. Yeah. And it also doesn't, and that pain doesn't also take away the joy of this celebration over here that those two things can exist simultaneously. They can. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So I think it's just, it's about perspective and that is a practice. Like that is a daily practice, but if you want to have a good time, if you want to enjoy then you need to let go of some of the control. Yeah. And find Just the joy in the midst of the struggle. Happiness is a choice. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. We've really enjoyed talking to Heather Jean about how hard it is dealing with the challenges of a dysfunctional marriage and early onset Alzheimer's. We especially liked when she pointed out that struggles are just incomparable. To unite with other damaged people, connect with us on TikTok. Look for Damaged Parents. We'll be here next week, still relatively damaged. See you then.